Let us begin. Okay, thank you everybody for coming, really. Um, the uh, Hasmada is wonderful. Tonight, we are continuing our Shior and team, and specifically the Paitanim of the throughout Jewish history. And last week, we discussed the famous Paitaner B. Shimon Bar Yitzchak, who was one of the early Ashkenaz Paitanim. And in order to get a sense for Ashkenaz Piyot and to understand where people like Shimon Bar Yitzchak were coming from, we discussed very much of his life and of the development of early Ashkenaz and exactly how Jews came to live in Northwestern Europe and precisely how those communities grew and why and what kind of place people like Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak and Piyutim uh, figured within that history. So to summarize, the earliest Jews were brought to Northwestern Europe by trade, by commerce, and yet the communities there weren't particularly happy. And they weren't happy to stick around because they didn't have Torah scholarship and they didn't have rabbis upon whom they could uh, build their communities and give it some form of permanent functioning fixture. So the kings of the time, the Carolinian kings, uh, incentivized and, um, what's the word, incentivized and sponsored the migration of certain big rabbanim to northwestern Europe, specifically in Mainz and in Speyer and in Worms, to head academies and to lead the yeshivot over there in those neighborhoods. And their productivity and the attraction of these rabbanim led to the, the fixturing of a community of at least three, four communities in northwestern Europe. Many of the Jews who lived in France at the time also traveled to these cities in, in Germany today just in order to learn by these rabbis and to study in the yeshivot. And their, uh, like Rashim Bar Yitzhak, as we, as we mentioned last week, and these were the earliest rabbanim who began Torah scholarship in Northwestern Europe. Now, it's important to realize the, the um, really the place that some, the, the uh, I shouldn't call it the place, it's important to realize the, the historical context for such a community in the High Middle Ages. Because previously, when a community was, uh, the, the earlier communities in Klai Yisrael had, you know, they had liens, they had, um, I shouldn't call it liens, they had relationships with the greater yeshivot, such as Bavel, and such as uh, Eretz Yisrael. And the greater yeshivot influenced most of the halachic rulings for those jurisdictions. They elected the Dayanim, and they had a tremendous influence on the daily life of the Jewish people in their jurisdictions. However, these yeshivot in Northwestern Europe were begun by rabbis who had originally come from Italy, and the Jews there were in and out people from all over the place. So these communities were very new and they had to develop their own society and their own way of life and their own minhagim. And they didn't feel 
uh, mishubad, right? They didn't feel uh, indebted or incumbent, in, encumbered by any of the previous, uh, any of the larger institutions in Klai Israel. And therefore they developed their own style and their own hierarchy, uh, their, own, their own societies, their own hierarchy of, of, um, uh, of Rabbanus and their own ways of dealing with communal issues and halachic issues. So earlier rabbis like, like Rabbeinu Gershom or Hagola, which I hope to get to his life a little bit more next week, he was one of the first Rabbanim to contradict rulings from the Talmud Bavli and instead side with the Talmud Yushami. And, in, and one of the first to, uh, to uh, what's the word, argue with the Chachamim in Bavel such as of high and of Shira. Therefore, the communities in Northwestern Europe, in, in Ashkenaz and in France, as we know them today, really began a prosperous few decades where the communities were growing, where Torah scholarship was blooming, especially under the direction of the Colonimus family and under the direction of Rabbeinu Gershon. These were becoming large communities. Now, as I mentioned briefly at the end of last week, the turn of the century brought a new era for the Jewish people. And the reason, this, well, the Jewish people in, in Northwestern Europe, the reason the beginning of the 11th century, right, like the years 1006, 1008, and 1012 were different was because of a new radicalized, uh, f fanatic Christianity, which uh, which was adopted by the kings of, Fran of the Frankish kings and the, and the Germanic kings in those areas at the time. Many of those kings adopted these radical ideas, and uh, we could call them political, but they were probably motivated by, by money, to baptize, uh, to force baptize uh, Jewish communities against their will. And when the Jewish people the Jews in uh, Northwestern Europe first experienced these persecutions, they were confused, they were terrified, and they had so many new questions about their role and their place in society, especially in the society which they previously had thought was safe. So this brought them so many new questions as to, you know, questions of conversion and questions of, of emuna and questions of, of testing their faith, that this, you know, these few years at the beginning of the, of the 11th century were very, very scary for the, for the Jewish communities. Now, to their good luck, to the good fortune, the popes and the bishops strongly condemned and canceled many of these decrees that were begun by the, the kings. For example, in the year 1012, Henry II banished all the Jews out of Mainz, which was, was a huge Jewish community. They had at least uh, 1,500 people living in Mainz at the time. And he banished all them out unless they were going to convert to Christianity, to which one of the popes uh, reversed this decree. Uh, might have been, the, the name is escaping me, Gregory or so, one of them, basically reversed this decree and slapped, uh, you know, metaphorically uh, slapped the king in the face and told him he wasn't allowed to do this again. But to really get a sense of, you know, the 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 Weltanschauung, really the worldview of the Jewish people in that time, 
we have to study the year 1096, which is, you know, close to the, the end of the 11th century. Now, I'm not, this is not a history class. This is really a class on Piute. So the reason I want to look at the history tonight is because if we don't understand the context in which these Piutim were written, we won't understand Ashkenazic, the Ashkenazic Piut whatsoever. Much of the Ashkenazic Piut of the 11th and 12th and 13th century, centuries is very lacrimose and morose in nature. It's often full of slichot, often full of kinot, and many depressing themes, which are not as much found in the poetry of the Iberian Peninsula, in the poetry of the Spanish, uh, of the Spanish Paitanim. So in order to understand the context of these Piutim, we first have to understand the history of, uh, of, the, of the year 1095, the year 1096, and what exactly happened that so radically changed the position of Jews and the, the worldview of Jews in Northwestern Europe. So just to give you some, uh, a little bit of a scholastic background, there's roughly four stages that historians speak about when we speak about anti-Semitism. The first is classical xenophobia. This was the earlier forms of anti-Semitism where warring and invading nations would find the Israelites to be different, other, weird, very different society, very different customs, and their hatred towards the Jews was usually that of a classical xenophobia, right? Like the Greek word xenos, to be other, to be foreign. These were people were other, and the otherness was enough to hate them, and it wasn't particularly because they were Jewish. And the Jewish people during the era of, before the Christian era, never really experienced specifically Jew hatred, it was usually classic xenophobia, with the, with the particular outlier case of Haman and the story of, of, of the Megillah, which actually didn't even succeed, we rarely find specifically anti-Jewish uh, behavior. It's usually anti-Jewish in the sense that it's, class, it's, it's just xenophobia. Then the next stage, when it develops a little, little more in the Christian era, you find what they call anti-Judaism. And the anti-Judaism is far more theological and theoretical, because in that first thousand years, the Christians were a, a daughter nation to Judaism. And for them, the, there was this kind of this you know, mother-daughter relationship, where, or father-son relationship, where the child is becoming more independent, and in order to become more dependent, kind of rebels against the parents. So a lot of the early Christian liturgy and the early Christian doctrine is filled with anti-Jewish polemics. However, much of these anti-Jewish polemics are very much theoretical in nature. Already by the fourth and third century, you find the church itself enshrining in their doctrine ways to protect the Jews within their spheres of influence because they understood that Christianity wasn't about violence and the Jews had to have a specific level of, of protection. So, for example, the doctrine of witness from Saint Aug uh, from the Pope Augustine, uh, uh, was it Saint Augustine? I don't remember his name, um, he, who wrote that the Jews had to stick around to, to, to be the witnesses for the second coming, etc., etc. And for that purpose, the Jews had to be left alone. So for that reason, the first thousand years after the Hurman, right, up until like the first, you know, up until roughly the year 1000, you find that most of the 
anti-Jewish stuff is, is merely theoretical. It was enshrined in the, the Nicene Creed that the Jews did not kill Yeshu. It was really, uh, our, Yeshu died for our sins and the Christians are not allowed, allowed to believe that, that Jews killed Yeshu. So really the first thousand years had anti-Jewish theory, but it really was more uh, academic theory and it wasn't so much put in practice. Most of the hatred towards Jews was outlier cases. You know, there were there were uh, what's the word? What's the word? Um, isolated cases of pogroms and uh, and different forms of anti-Jewish behavior, especially by the Muslims. But the Muslims treated everybody who was an infidel the same way, and there were many Christians who fell to the same sword. And for that first thousand years, when the Jews were targeted, it was usually not because they were Jewish. The next phase, the, the is is something historians call medieval Jewish hatred. This is what the, so many of the piyutim that we're going to read are so confused by and so, so completely, completely um, devastated by this medieval Jewish hatred that, that, that came upon the, Jew, the, the Jews of Northwestern Europe, which really people in Spain didn't see for, for a few hundred years. Other places of Europe didn't really see the medieval, this medieval Jew hatred, as the historians like to call it, fully get, uh, reach its peak of animosity until the, the end of the 14th century. So what exactly happened? What exactly happened that radically changed Jewish life forever? So what happened was the First Crusade. And the First Crusade is something they'll teach you in history class. If anybody remembers from a little bit, it might be a little bit fuzzy, but we all live in the West. So if we learned about the, the Crusades in, in the West, they taught it to us uh, with uh, the white worldview, where it is that uh, you might remember some fuzzy details where uh, the, one of the popes said we should all march to Jerusalem, and a lot of people marched to Jerusalem, and they captured Jerusalem, and uh, that lasted for a short while. Right? That might be the fuzzy memory many of us have of the First Crusade. But the First Crusade was a world-changing event that changed how the entire world saw the Europeans and how the entire world, um, and how the other world religions related to each other forever. So to give a brief outline of this history, and I don't want to go too far, most people start it with the year 1095, but that's not really how, how the, 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 the Crusades begin. The Crusades begin back 400 years earlier, when really, the story of the Crusades begins a little earlier, when the, the, Mus, the, the Muslim armies conquered Eretz Yisrael in the year 635, and it fell out of Christian hands for many hundreds of years. Now this, in and of itself, was not a problem, because the Muslim invaders were pretty welcoming to pilgrims of all sorts, Jews, Christians, whoever wanted to come, they were typically tolerated. So the Christian kingdoms didn't have too much of an issue with the, the, the rule of the various caliphates over Eretz Yisrael. However, in the 11th century, the, I think they were called the Seljuk Turks, took over from a previous uh, um, Muslim uh, occupation in Eretz Yisrael. They took over the rule of Yerushalayim. And for a short amount of time, very short amount of time, they were giving trouble to Christian pilgrims who wanted to come to Yerushalayim. Now, after some bribing and some, and some negotiations, all of this was quickly resolved. But what happened was, was that the Byzantine Empire, Alexios, sorry, the Byzantine Emperor, who controlled the eastern, 
uh, Christian kingdom, he sent a petition to he sent a petition to the um, to the Pope, whose name was Urban II, and he asked him for assistance in is some military assistance in order to uh, retake Yerushalayim, in a sense, and in order to allow the, the Christian pilgrimages to go to Yerushalayim once more. Now, to be clear, uh, this Emperor Alexios was a very shrewd guy. And his objective was really not such a religious objective. What he wanted was that the Europe, the, that the Western European, the Holy Roman Empire, right, the, the Western European kings would show up, give him free military assistance under the guise of religiosity, and take back a couple of cities which the Turks had, had won against him. But Pope Urban II, who received this letter, had a whole nother idea. And he made one of the most catastrophic decisions and one of the most catastrophic, um, one of the most catastrophic decisions in the history of history, so to speak. And he saw this as an opportunity to reunite all of the, the various empires that, under a single cause. He saw it as a way to reunify the church which had split between the West and the East. And he saw it as a way to ascend the church to a, to a, to a new degree of authority. He wanted the church to be like one great, uh, you know, <laughs> one great, um, institution which really ruled Europe. So roughly in the winter of 1095, he got up in the Council of Clermont in France, and he gave a big sermon, which uh, if you look in the PU team, they sometimes call this, uh, where he gave it at the top of the hill, they call it Har Eiffel, like the, the hill of doom, because <laughs> this speech really caused doom for the entire Europe. And he said, he preached a holy war, so to speak, a jihad. And he said that he gave a promise of absolution, right? You're going to go to heaven and you're going to come out completely uh, free of sin. If you, you're going to go to guaranteed ticket to heaven if you will drop what you're doing and embark on a crusade, on a, on a, on a, on a trek to Yerushalayim to go and free it from the Muslim, cleanse it from, from the infidels and, uh, you know, and do as, as God wishes and, uh, and, cleanse it of, and, and cleanse it for the sake of Christianity and for the sake of their God. So little did he realize how moving his speech was going to be and how, and how much it resonated with the crowd. You see, the problem was that he really wanted the princes and, and the knights and all the young hooligans who were bored and violent but couldn't fight wars because it was, you know, against Christian dogma to fight wars and to be violent. He wanted all the bored young people and all the, all the rich kings to have an excuse to go to war and to give a permissible war under the guise of a holy war because that's permissible. Killing is obviously permissible if it's holy. However, what happened was, was that the masses responded with a tremendous fervor. And even at the speech itself, one person yelled out, uh, I think it was in Latin, Deus volt, which means God wills it. And the entire, the entire crowd, thousands of people, began to chant, Deus volt, Deus, like they began to chant, God wills it. And one of the priests got down, he says, I will lead the people, blah, blah, blah. There's eyewitness accounts of this. I'm not making any of this up. And what happened from that point on was that this message got broken telephoned all the way all around Europe. Now, to be clear, the, the Pope wasn't even in Rome at the time because of some dispute over the papacy, yada, yada, yada. So he really wanted his throne back. 
And this had a tremendous, tremendous effect for him. So what happened was, was that the broken telephone brought this message of, of this uh, holy war to the masses as well as to the rulers. And in like a real act of faith, these Christians were like, what, absolution? Of course, we're going. And they <laughs> dropped their worldly affairs and old people, young people, women, children lined up to go be part of um, of this crusade. However, the problem is, and this is where the Jews get involved, was that this was extremely, terribly, awfully organized. He expected that this would be a completely higher political thing. The Pope thought that, okay, this was going to be military. They would need until about spring. He gave them a deadline for the march because, uh, you know, springtime roughly, you can have your affairs in order and you'll have enough crop for harvest to supply the armies. And he was convinced that by springtime, everything would be fine. But what happened was, was that tremendous amounts of people, between 60,000 to 100,000 people, gathered into groups around Europe in order to start marching to Jerusalem. And this was a catastrophe because these foolish peasants had no idea what it meant to leave your home with nothing, to go to strange alien lands and have enough supplies, you know, have any armor what's, what to speak of. So it became a, a supply chain nightmare. People, there was no... Uh, there, there, were, there was no food. How are you going to supply a quasi-army when you have, when nobody has any ideas, there's, there's no agriculture, there's no, you know, you're just, you're a few thousand people on the road. How are you finding food? So this was the birth in 1096 of what could be called the People's Crusade, where mobs and mobs, thousands and thousands of people were basically mulling around waiting to march to Yushalayim with no clear direction, no clear leaders, and not much to do, and they were pretty, pretty hungry. So a couple of preachers like Peter the Hermit and, uh, and others whose name escaped me, and, and, and one of the counts, like Count Emiko, are most famous for corralling the people into larger groups, and not, not again, not the military, just people, and claiming that they will be their leader and take them to Jerusalem. But they were like, you know what? Why do we need to travel all the way to Yushalayim to cleanse, uh, you know, to cleanse Yushalayim of infidel? We have infidel right here. We have, uh, we have Jews in our backyard. Why don't we cleanse the countryside of them? So what began was massive amounts of attacks and pillaging against minorities, especially Jewish, uh, Jewish communities, for just for rations, for supplies. And these mobs were almost universally hated. Almost every single city that these, that these, uh, that these large, that the People's Crusade ended up at their doorstep didn't want to take them in because like we, we have about enough food to support our own city. We don't have enough food to support your 10,000 lunatics outside our walls. So when the Jews saw these mobs, they were terrified. So the first thing they would do is bribe them. They would bribe them with um, enough money for them to buy food or to, to get out of their way, to stay away for some time. And to some, in, some, uh, in some instances this worked, where they were able to, to either run away or to bribe them with enough uh, bribes so that they would use the money and go buy whatever they needed and stay away from the Jewish communities. The problem was that their leaders would not be mollified by just bribes. And this is what really confused the Jews at the time. The, the fact that previously, like, you could pay people money and you could, you could bribe them and they would stop all the shenanigans. And this is something the Jews saw also in World War II, in the Holocaust, 
where before World War II, where they tried to bribe Hitler, and those bribes simply didn't work because Hitler didn't hate the Jews because they were rich. He hated them for much more for much deeper reasons, and the amount of money that the Jews could pay was not going to mollify this true embedded anti-Semitism. And this was something absolutely terrifying to them. It was something they didn't understand. Why are we being attacked? For what purpose? And the stories of the crusade in 1096 are so horrific that they revile not just Jewish chroniclers. They revile the Christian chroniclers. They revile the Muslim chroniclers. Almost everybody who writes about the People's Crusade speaks of it with absolute revulsion. What the mob did in their desperation and their hatred for Jews is beyond unforgivable, and it's, it's, it's a stain on history that, that really should be taught more in schools, but it's really a footnote if you look in the Western textbooks. Like, oh, and on the way, they managed, the, you know, the People's Crusade also pillaged cities, and they also killed a bunch of Jews, and then they were finally... Uh, you know, slaughtered by the Turks and, and, the, and the Hungarians, which, you know, which is, it's really a footnote. But for the Jews, it was a massive, massive turning point. So in Worms and in Speyer and in Mainz, the Jews had different fates. First of all, in Speyer, the bishop of Speyer, uh, of Speyer, so to speak, refused to let the crusaders in. He's like, your guys are not coming into our city whatsoever. And I think his name was, hold up, uh, let's see. Do I have his name? It might have been Rutard, one of the one of one of the one of the bishops. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have his name, but he locked the gates to the city, and then when the when the mob pushed their way into the city anyway, he brought all of the Jews into his own castle and locked the castle. Then he told his garrison to cut the hands off of any, any people from the mob who dared get near the gates. So there were, so, there were about 12 Jews who were killed near the Shulin Spire, um, just from all the pillagers and all the, the villains who were running around Spire trying to steal and to loot. But uh, when they tried to actually atta attack the Jews and attack the actual Jews in Spire as being the, uh, you know, let's, let, let's find the Jews and kill them and uh, take all their money, that, that was stopped by the Bishop of Spire, really heroically, because he did it at great personal risk since the mob really almost knocked, almost broke the door down. And Spire, this, the Jews of Spire were much luckier than the Jews of Mainz and of, of Worms. Another consideration here for the Jewish peril was that the Jews were moneylenders. And for them, the, the, for, for these impoverished peasants, a lot of them had to borrow money to even, you know, to even buy enough armor to, to even hope to go on a war anywhere, to even buy a sword. So a lot of these non-Jews owed money to the Jews. And, for their, and for, for their purposes, killing the Jews just resolved all your debts. So it was even, even easier and even better if we could kill all the Jews. So this, um, this might have worked in Spire, right? The government, the gov quote unquote, government intervention, really the bishop's intervention. But in Mainz and in Worms, they were much less lucky. So in Mainz, the bishop, I, let me think it was in, hold up. I think, yeah, in, in, in Mainz, the bishop, whose name was Rutard, he hid the Jews in his palace, and then him and all the burghers, which were the rich, rich Christians, mounted an offensive. They got on their horses, they, took out, they, they literally went to war with these crusaders because they were, they were attackers on, on, on their city, so to speak. And they tried their best to defend the Jews. A lot of the Christian 
uh, burghers themselves hid the Jews in their houses because these were their friends, their business associates. These were people they really, really needed. And they, a lot of them did their, the, at least the richer Christians, did their best to protect the Jews and even went to war for them. But when the crusade mob became absolutely too huge, they literally just had to, 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 to flee and to retreat. So they left their stand and they left a lot of the Jews helpless. So they eventually managed to breach the castle of the, the palace of the Bishop of Mainz and they slaughtered, I think in Mainz it was roughly, uh, let me just check my paper, it was roughly, I think 1,100, 1100 Jews were murdered in the palace, which was, the, the, the stories say that they were wading through blood. The, the crusaders were literally just cutting Jews down mercilessly. With the only, you know, the only reason to, 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 to not kill a Jew would be if he would say that he would baptize himself. But even then, they, they, they would cut people down. Lastly, it was in Worms where the bishop tried to, to shelter them in his castle, but uh, the, heroically, really, because he, he almost, he himself was injured, but eventually the, the crusaders stormed the castle and killed all the infidels in their, <laughs> in their reach, and about 800 Jews were killed in Worms. Now, the stories of this, if you read from the Jewish Chronicles, are absolutely horrific, and, and you have to turn off your brain. It's almost like reading Holocaust stories. To, to read the stories of what happened in Mainz and in Worms and in Spire and in Cologne are, are so heartbreaking. And, and if you want to read it from like an academic perspective, you turn off your brain, you read the horrors, and then you, you try, to, you try to, to study it because it's very, very difficult to read. But this is what happened. And later, I mean, well, if, it, if there's any, any consolation for these horrors, when these mobs reached the door of Hungary, the Hungarians at first didn't want to let them in, and then they're like, oh, it's religious reasons, maybe we will, just to be nice to the Pope. But eventually the, the, the pillager, they pillaged the, the suburbs of, of the Hungarian towns, and they started killing people in Hungary. So the king of Hungary slaughtered thousands of these people who had slaughtered Jews. So most of these ruthless, horrible crusaders were, 90% of them were murdered by the Hungarians. And then those of Count Emiko, who was really a, a true Hitler, Emiko was given a bribe, by the way. Um, he was given a bribe by the Jewish people to promise, you know, that you're not gonna not gonna hurt the Jews in our area. And he took the bribe, and then three days later, uh, led uh, thousands of people to go to go kill the Jews in Mites. So Count Emiko was a real, real Hitler. And uh, the Count Emiko's forces were murdered by the Turks, uh, and 90% of the People's Crusade was wiped out as they deserved, to be honest, because they were barely an army, and <laughs> they're, you know with poor planning came their demise. So these, this mob violence was the absolute horror of the Jewish people in Northwestern Europe. Now obviously, the way the Muslims teach it and the, the Arab countries teach the Crusades is also fairly negative towards the Europeans because this was an act of naked aggression. Like, who are you to just come marching through our lands and start conquering? And furthermore, the only reason we lost was because we weren't united, yada, yada. That's how the, really how the Arabs teach, uh, teach the Crusades, especially because when the Christians showed up to Yerushalayim, finally, like in 1099, when the Prince's Crusade finally reached Yerushalayim, they, they murdered Christians, they murdered Muslims, they murder, murdered Jews. Any living person they found in Yerushalayim, they just cut down indiscriminately. So the Crusaders were not Sadiqim whatsoever. And their, uh, their legacy is one really of very much of blood. So these, this was the, this is just some of the historical background for the Crusades and how it affected the Jews. 
Now, let's speak specifically not about how, obviously, how it, how it affected the Arab world, but how did it change Jewish perspective forever, and how does that affect Piot? And I really wish that we didn't have to do this, because it sounds like more like the past 20 minutes we've been working on. Uh, has it been 20 minutes? I, I feel like, let me see. 32 minutes. We've been working just on history, but it's really important to understand all of this, just to understand where all of these piyutim are coming from. Okay, so first of all, one of the major effects of the, of the Crusades was a complete loss of security and trust in their Christian neighbors and all of the positives of Christian culture, of, of which there were a few. Because <laughs> the, although some of the richer Christians and some of the more educated ones might have tried to be the friends of the Jews, the peasants and the middle class very often sided with the Crusaders. And they took part in the looting and the pillaging. They're like, oh great, our, our mid upper middle class Jewish neighbors are being looted, let's take part in it. So you can imagine post this Holocaust, when the Jews have to try to get back to some semblance of normal, they're looking at, at Craig down the block, and Craig down the block murdered, murdered the Feinsteins down, you know, next door. Like, what, how could you get back to normal when your neighbors were, were murderers? Even if the Crusaders themselves had marched away, the Crusaders themselves were murdered by the Hungarians, but even their neighbors took part in this looting, pillaging, and killing. So it was, there was a complete breakdown of their, of their security and of their trust for their Christian neighbors. And this led to a complete distancing of Jews from Christians in Northwestern Europe and a, a revulsion really for their religion. So much so that we find that the Jews of Northwestern Europe didn't become enmeshed in the society in the way the Jews of Spain did. The Jews of Spain integrated themselves into Muslim culture, and they integrated themselves into Christian culture, and they became one with the sciences and with the philosophies and with, with, with the culture of, of, of all of the peoples of the Iberian Peninsula. And the Jews knew how to enmesh themselves and to advantage themselves inside these politics. But in Northwestern Europe, they would never think of that. These people were not, these are not our friends. These Goyim, these are not our friends. We will not be their friends. They have never been. And these are secret Nazis, and we will never speak. We will never try to become too close to them again. This was one of the major effects that, for them, after this, the Crusades, they looked inward instead of looking outward and becoming, reaching out to the Christian society and and studying science with the Christians, studying philosophy with them, and sharing it with them. They moved inward, and for them, the rescue was Tyra. The rescue for them was Chuva. and for them to look inward was the only way, and to build Tyra inward, and to build. Their, their moral system of tshuva inward was the only response, the only proper response to their crusades in, in their view. Now, secondly, they also, obviously, just from an from a, from a economic standpoint, they, ha they had to, and a political standpoint, they had to strategically reorient their polity because they had to mitigate risk. And previously, the Jews of Northwestern Europe were very much merchants. So many of them were merchants, skilled merchants. They would, they would trade from town to town. They would trade via boat. They would go from country to country. And this really advantaged them to live on ports, to live in smaller uh, villages and, and, and more suburban societies. But, but the Crusaders had showed them that being in a suburb was very unsafe because if you were in a village, you were very vulnerable to being, to being um, uh, looted and to being uh, 
attacked by a mob who might want to pillage you. So the Jews, for their safety, had to move to the urban centers and they had to move towards the cities where they could partake less in this kind of safer type of traveling that they thought was safer previously. So the Jews of Ashkenaz gravitated towards urbanization and sticking towards urban professions, such as being doctors and bankers and lawyers and, and you know all the classical Jewish stuff that we all think about today. So this really changed who the Jews were. And because they were, you know, they were far more urbanized, they also, again, this was a way of them looking inward and living in segregated areas within Worms and Mainz and Spire and, and, and similar cities in Germany and France. Um, let me just move on onward for one second. Oh, sorry, I opened the wrong document. It's my bad. Um, okay, now just as, again, one one more thing. Uh, they, the 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 popes, the later popes, were sickened by the by by the by the violence of the Crusades. They did enact like the the Dictus Judaicus and many formal religious laws which protected the Jews, so that this should never happen again. And even if you could say that Pope Urban II was not a friend of the Jews, he still definitely didn't want people looting and pillaging. He wanted them to go to Yerushalayim. He had no interest in people looting and pillaging cities. This was not on his agenda. He wanted people to go to Jerusalem and he wanted to unify for a military force. It was never his, his intention to have, to have mass murders and genocides happen. That's just, that's just to begin with. And eventually, within about 50 years, the church officially, uh, first they, they put lighter, they put a more of a framework law, but then the, the church put real laws about how to treat Jews and how they, had to be, how, how they had to have real human rights. So that's just to credit the church. But the Jews, as I mentioned, did look inward for, their, for the solutions to these problems. And their theology was forever, forever altered. You have to understand how Ashkenaz Jewry now had to think about the world. For them, what previously, the previously Gaulus could be some place where, you know, there are areas where we could prosper. Now, the people of, 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 of Ashkenaz were wondering, when is the Mashiach coming? Why did Hashem do this to us? When, what, why is, do we not have the Geula? And for what did we deserve this? And to answer all of the theological calls, the rabbis, the greatest rabbis of the generation, would typically respond to theological questions and matters with piyutim. While a halachic matter was going to be replied and responded to in a tshuva, right? If you're going to answer, uh, is this meat kosher? Or is this person who was force baptized allowed to continue to, 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 to be a Jew? If you're gonna have a halachic question like that, there'd be a tshuva, a, a shayla sent to a rabbi, he'd respond with a tshuva, you know, shayla v'tshuva. That's how it was. But when it came to the moral questions of the day, they still weren't writing Sfarim like Masiel Sisharim at that time. It was almost 150 years, uh, 100 years before the publishing of Sefer Hasidim, which is more of a halachic Sefer to begin with. So they didn't really have Sfarim about morality. When they were going to answer questions of theology, it was going to be in a piyot form because in their minds, the highest level of scholarship was represented by poetry. The greatest scholars could only write in poetry. So for these uh, titans, these great rabbis of the time, their way to respond to the people and to console them and to educate them and to direct them and lead them through these difficult times was always going to be through poetry. So for the most part, the theology that we see reflected in the piyutim of these gedalim is that 
by and large, they blamed themselves for these massacres. And they looked inward and said that these massacres were for our own chata'im and for our own sins. And that in order to uh, overcome uh, tragedies like this, and in order to prevent tragedies like this, we need the Torah. And we need to strengthen our Torah, we need to strengthen our frumkite, and we need to strengthen our love for our, our fellow Jews. We also need to distance ourselves from the revolting Christians and the revolting religions. That's by far and large a theology that we're going to see reflected in the keynote as we're going to see them next week. And God willing, if anybody's going to have time on Tisha B'Av to actually read the Mahsar, I'd recommend either the Art Scroll or the Koran is very, very good, which will go through some of the personalities and, and, and some of the background of those keynote and why and when uh, they were written. So let's discuss for a second some of these genres of piyut. Okay. Let me, sorry for the pause. Where are we here? The first, I, yeah, okay, so let's place these into the two main categories. Let, let's, let's place these as two main categories, the slicha and the kina. So the slicha, a kina is very much an elegy. It's a, it's a, it's a lament for the dead. Um, and typically a kina is a type of piyut that was pioneered by Rebelezer HaKalir for Tisha B'Av. However, the Kinah style was expanded or borrowed in order to write Kinah specifically for individual tragedies, such as those of the year 1096, the year after uh, Urban II's call. So, uh, or the year of the, sometimes it was called the, the Gzerot Shum, right? Shin Vav Mem for the Spires, Worms, and, and Mainz. And sometimes it's called Gzeris Tatnu for Tuf Tuf Nun Vav. So a lot of these uh, there were new kinot that were written for the Gzeratatnu or the Gzerot Shum. That's the, that's the first genre. The other genre is, as I mentioned, the Slichot. And this is where you take the tragedy and you turn it into a way to ask Hashem for forgiveness. Or you ask Hashem for his closeness, or you ask Hashem some petition and some hope and some change for the future. So there's various genres of the Slichot, which I'm just going to mention tonight as an introduction. Firstly is the genre of the Akedah. To explain the Akedah is very morbid, but we're going to have to do it. And I'm sorry to anybody who, has, who is about to eat something because this is, about, this is what we have to do. The, there was a phenomenon that began in the time of the... There was a phenomenon that began in, ten, in 1096 during these forced baptisms where some of the Jews... In, in experiencing or going through these immediate horrors, chose to commit suicide rather than to, uh, to convert to Christianity. In, or, in other words, before they would get killed by a Christian for not converting or tortured, they would kill themselves. And in some horrific scenarios, they would also kill their own children. So this presented a tremendous theological problem for the Jews, because if you think about it, what, what, how are they supposed to think about this? The, the halacha is, is completely against halacha to do this. And yet these people are heroes. On the, one po on the one hand, it feels like these people are heroes. They gave up everything and they refused. They, they did this completely the shame shemayim. And on the other hand, what they were doing was against halacha. So they ha it was a very confusing problem that they had to deal with. And the theological response for this, even though it wasn't really a halachic response, 
was to compare them to the Akedat Yitzchak, where Yitzchak Avinu sacrificed himself, so to speak, just for the will of Hashem. Now, there aren't clear parallels. The Midrash does say that it's as if he did die uh, at the Akedat, even though he didn't really die. But these, this was the closest parallel they could find, because the story of Masada and Bar Kochba wasn't a rabbinically sanctioned thing, and the Rabbanim never really approved the suicide by, by Masada. So the, the closest story they could give an, an, an analogy to was the Akedat Yitzchak. So when they speak of these horrible, horrible stories, and I implore you, unless it's Tisha B'Av, don't go looking after these stories. But, but if they... I'm still damaged. <laughs> I'm telling you, I spent too long uh, researching for this shiur, and I'm still scarred by what I read. It, the, the, the suicides that are... The, the problem of suicide, when it's discussed and confronted in piyut, is confronted in a slicha called an akedah, where it bemoans the fate of the Jewish people, first by speaking about Yitzchak Avinu, our forefather, who gave himself for Hashem's name, and then finally for the innocent who were murdered and also gave themselves for Hashem's name. And the first to write one like this, this is not very well known, was Rameir ben Yitzchak, Rameir Shiach Tzibur, who wrote one of these, and get this, before 1096. This is not very well known. But even before the Crusades of 1096, the People's Crusade, there were Jews who had done this. This began before 1096. This was like a virus of a movement for people to do this and, um, and to commit this martyrdom. And, and he wrote a, an Akedah first. So Rameir Shiach Tzibur, who was considered tremendous authority, and I, I hope we could discuss him more next week, he was the first to write an Akedah, and this, and this virus of an idea, so to speak, spread among, among the Jewish people. Again, it's not halachically sanctioned, and it's a tremendously complicated topic for whether or not they were right to do this. Be that as it may, this, was, this, was, this is the first type of, of slicha that, that was composed. And I'll mention just in passing that the Spanish Jews, from a historical perspective, this is very interesting. They would rather become conversos and fake that they were Christian than, than commit suicide for the cause. So there's a tremendously different worldview or Weltanschauung of the, of the German Jews than the Spanish Jews. You just have to remember that, that these were different societies, different worlds, and in one society, if it came to death, uh, eviction, or fake conversion, they would choose fake conversion over martyrdom. So there, there's many different theories as to why that's the case, why the Spanish were more free to do, felt more free to become conversos and, and the Germans would, would, would rather commit suicide or rather fall to the sword or be burned. But that's for another, that is for another time. Okay, the second form is a peticha. This is another type of slicha which was uh, uh, loved by the Ashkenazi Paitanim. A, a peticha is really just an opening for the Yudgimel Midot of Yamim Noraim when they read the Yudgimel Midot uh, during uh, the Yamim Noraim. So Rashi wrote to a couple of people wrote uh, wrote what is called a peticha. Then comes the chatanu, which is a slicha structure, very simple, uh, using the strophic, you know, common slicha structure that, that the Ashkenazi Paitanam liked. And they would write it with a aina lanu ki chatanu or ay ki chatanu, right? Some sort of refrain which continues the ki chatanu that we have sinned and we have sinned. Not always are they addressing a specific tragedy, sometimes it's specific, uh, it's addressing Yamim Nairam in particular because it's a slicha after all, and those are called the chatanu slichot. Lastly, there is the Gzerot Slichot, which you might be very familiar with from Tisha B'Av. Some on Tisha B'Av are Kinot, some are Slichot. There are those halachically who don't believe you are supposed to say Slichot on 
on Tisha B'Av because Tisha B'Av is, a ta- is, is called a Moed and therefore you're not halachically supposed to say Slichot. The, the modern, the, the Ramah Paskins that you can and therefore there are certain Slichot which ask Hashem for repentance on, that, we, that are said on, on Tisha B'Av and these directly address the stories of the tragedies that happened throughout from before the first crusade to the second crusade and third crusade. So um, that's, that, that's the, the last form of slicha that we have to discuss. Now, although the second crusade, I should mention just for now, although the second crusade was uh, not to capture Yushalayim and, and, and uh, it was really just to recapture Edessa and the second crusade already existed after the laws to protect the Jews existed, um, the Second Crusade still caused a lot of horrors for the Jews, not to the degree that it happened earlier. The Jews planned a lot better. The Jews <laughs> both, uh, you know, uh, evacuated and the Jews uh, managed to, to secure themselves and, and to, to bribe the right people at the right time and buy protection and, 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 and buy, buy security. Uh, the Second Crusade was not as as harmful to the Jews, but it was just as terrifying because they knew exactly what had happened 60 years earlier. So for them, it was at a very terrifying time. And there are many slichot written, especially by Rafaim Ibon and uh, Rabbi David ben Meshulam and Rukhain Mes ben Yehuda about the Second Crusades, which we'll hopefully, hopefully address uh, next week as well. Lastly, just before we end the shiur, I've, I've introduced up until now why the Crusades were a large part of the... Um, why the Crusades were a large part of the Jewish worldview and why the persecutions, the Christian fanatical persecutions that occurred mostly by mobs and masses terrified and changed the Jews in that era. We've discussed so far how Piot is a direct theological reflection of the Jewish people in those areas in that era and in sharp contrast to the Piot that we're going to see from Spain. Lastly, just before we go, I wanted to mention, I think we've basically used up all our time here, um, I just wanted to mention the, the sunset of Ashkenaz Piyut and, and why exactly it, it, it kind of went away. So first of all, the, the, the entire repertoire, the cycle of the year of, of, of the Piyutim had already become full. For every holiday, for every, for every occasion, someone had already written a Piyut. When you get to the 13th century already, almost everything was, was written. And if someone was writing a new, a new Piyut, it was written for a new tragedy. So it wasn't really like uh, uh, an art form that people wanted to teach or wanted to be good at. Secondly, the culture of Piot was different than the culture in Spain. In Spain, it was about art for art's sake. It was a religious art, so to speak, but a religious art for art's sake. While in Ashkenaz, Piot, part of their culture of Piot was around the shul, the synagogue and the liturgy was about tefillah. And if Piot was about tefillah, as long as you needed it, you'd continue to make it but if it wasn't uh, important to the tefillah, and we already have enough piyutim, we don't need to write anymore. In Spain, it was more entrenched into the culture, so it lasted a little bit longer. But in Ashkenaz, as soon as they had enough piyutim, and already their great Gedalim generations prior had written piyutim, nobody felt that it was worth, uh, worthy to write uh, piyutim to supplant the existing ones from all their greats. So <clears throat> therefore, <clears throat> we find a sunset of the era of Piot in the medieval times in Ashkenaz. Um, so that's, that's basically the end of this year. Um, for extra credit, if you want to stick around, I'm going to share my screen uh, for anybody who wants to stick around. Uh, last week, we discussed Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak. And Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak 
was one of the great uh, Paitanim of uh, pre-Crusade uh, Northern Germany, probably the first uh, German-born scholar. And there was a pute of his that I failed to mention, and I want to mention it tonight just because of a contrast I found, which I thought was actually very beautiful. And it, it does pertain to today's shiur, so if you're interested, stick around. The, there's a, there's a uh, piyot, which is mentioned on Tzom Gedalia. And the Tzom Gedalia piyot is made famous by Mordechai ben David, and it goes like this. Torah HaKadoshah et Chanani Bevakasha Penei Hatsur Na'aratz Bektusha Shifchi Siach Arev Zichri Maaseh Chorev Benaseh Venishma Namule Hitkarev. And in short, what this beautiful piyot is saying in Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak's style, is that he is begging the Torah, the Holy Torah, to intercede on behalf of Klai Yisrael. Our beloved Torah, we've studied you so much and you are our treasure. Please go to Hashem and ask Him for forgiveness for our sins. And so this was written before the Crusades. Rashi himself wrote a couple of piyutim. And Rashi's piyutim are really only of interest, because, of special interest, because of his stature. I mean, he wasn't a, true, a great python, but he wrote about 10 piyutim that we have today. They were collected by Avramir Haberman in, 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 a, in a small pamphlet. And Rashi copied of Shimon Bar Yitzchak, and he wrote such a beautiful piyut that I just wanted to share it for extra credit, if anybody wants to see. And it's called Torah Hatimima. And what I find fascinating about it is Rashi's Rashi's worldview, and it almost reminds me of like the Litvisha worldview of the Shivot today, um, that when you have trouble, when you, when you have a, when you find calamity, your refuge is nowhere but the Torah. And Rashi's, look, look here at Rashi's piyut, I'm just sharing my screen. Torah hatimima alpayim kiduma chalina pnekel tama. Right, our, our perfect Torah who existed 2,000 years before the world was created, please entreat Hashem for your, his beloved perfect dove. Shikdi betchina, and treat Hashem with tchina, p'nei shochen me'ona, the face of he who is, uh, abodes up high, l'rachem oskaich, to have mercy upon those who toil in your Torah, b'chol rega ve'ona, in every living moment. Absolutely beautiful piyut uh, that, that Rashi wrote here. And you really see in it how Rashi is speaking from the worldview of somebody who sees the, the who's, who, knew, who knew of the Torah centers in Mainz and Spire. A lot of these Torah centers were booming uh, under the leadership of Rabbeinu Gershon. And he saw these, these, uh, these Torah centers destroyed in Mainz. So for him, the, 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 the absolute tragedy and holocaust of this, of this era, the only response in Rashi's mind as, as the Rabban Shalai Yisrael was that if we're going to see such horror, such tragedy and such loss, we have to, we have to strengthen ourselves inwardly and we have to look to the Torah. And so he entreats the Torah and he says, if we're going to learn you well, you have to protect us. And you have to go to Hashem and uh, beg him to, to, to take revenge against our Christian persecutors and to uh, save us from these problems. And at the end he ends, Chazot Kiryat Moed, Nugei Moed, Kiba Moed. Very, very beautiful stuff. And as we approach the Shabbat, we really have very serendipitous Hashkacha Pratis timing that we are approaching Tisha B'Av and we're going to read some <laughs> awfully depressing stuff next week. So I hope everybody sticks around. I hope it was interesting enough that we'll come back and not morose enough that we'll have an inspiring Tisha B'Av and we'll be much more prepared this year for Tisha B'Av, I promise you. Okay, so thank you everybody for coming and I will see you all uh, next week, Bezrat Hashem.